Network Daily Debrief, everybody. Let's begin with the Harvey Weinstein sex crimes trial in New York, where model Gigi Hadid has been called to be a juror. Reporters secured permission to name her. During voir dire, Hadid said she had met Weinstein and had also met Soma Hayek, one of Weinstein's accusers. Despite those meetings, Hadid said she was, in her words, still able to keep an open mind on the facts. Thus begins the second week of jury selection in the Weinstein case. Let's jump in with our panel. Three attorneys with us tonight. Nicole DeBoard in Houston, Michael Bachner and Michael Bryant with me here in New York. So Michael Bryant, does she wind up on this jury or not? She has to come back on Thursday. They didn't toss her out no, uh, right away. No, 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 that is not going to happen. Uh, you know, you don't need that kind of sideshow in the midst of a circus. Uh, no, they, they don't want that kind of distraction in the jury box. No. Nicole DeBoard, your thoughts on this. I mean, what happens if the defense has to plow through almost every peremptory challenge on something that's an even worse issue than this? Exactly. And I think that that's what will happen. I think that they will have to use a peremptory challenge unless she says something that excludes her uh, and, and the judge will be forced to let her go because I don't think either side is going to want to give up an extra strike to the other side. Yeah, Michael Bachner, I want to ask you about this. So, um, do we take her at her word that she can be a fair juror in a case where she's met the defendant and met and potentially knows one of the accusers somewhat well? Through proper questioning on voir dire, I think you can probably get her to say something that's going to get her off the jury. But, you know, if I'm the defense, I'm thinking to myself, she knows Weinstein and she obviously had no problems with him because she said she can remain fair. So maybe she can go into the jury room and teach the other jurors about, hey, I met Harvey Weinstein and he was fine with me. This is exactly the reason that she's not going to be selected. She knows too much. She knows the characters. Uh, Ms. Hadid is uh, never, she's never going to make it onto that panel, I'd bet. Oh, oh, exactly. I don't see this either. So, Michael Bryant, if you're either side and this comes down to a peremptory challenge, are, are you hoping the other side is the one that crosses her name on the list? Because the way I've seen this go down is you, you pass the list back and forth until each side makes all of its strikes. Yeah, that's, that's what will happen. Hopefully you won't be wasting your last. You force the other guys to use theirs and move the post-its along the board there. And if you don't get to have to use yours, then you can save it for somebody else. All right, let's move on now. Another case to discuss here tonight, a last-minute plea deal for the man who refused to fight charges. He opened fire at the popular ZombieCon festival in Fort Myers, Florida. Jose Bonilla pleaded no contest to second-degree murder, aggravated battery, tampering with or fabricating evidence, and possession of a firearm by a delinquent. The deal will keep him behind prison walls for a minimum of 25 years on the murder charge, plus another 20 years on the aggravated battery charges, all served together. Bonilla's plea does not admit direct guilt, but it admits prosecutors have enough evidence to convict him of opening fire in the October 2015 festival. He killed one victim, Expavius Terrell Taylor, age 20, and injured five others. The no contest plea legally functions as a guilty plea for purposes of the criminal case. Here's how it went down in court. To those seven charges, how do you plead, sir? No contest. Do you understand that when you plead no contest that you waive your right to a trial by jury? Yes, sir. And the right to appeal everything in this case except for the jurisdiction of the court and the legality of the sentence. Would I be able to come back on appeal? No, sir. Yes, sir. I can't hear you. I understand. Did Expavius Tyrell Taylor die because he was shot at ZombieCon? Oh, yeah. Well, he died, yeah. 
and you shot the gun where the bullet killed Expavius Tyrell Taylor, correct? You had to protect myself. Did you shoot and injure five other people who you now know the names of David Perez, Kajami Baru, Kyle Roberts, Isaiah Knight, and Tyree Hunter? I ain't know them, but they got hit. The sister of the victim who did not survive that attack spoke at a sentencing hearing which immediately followed the plea deal. This is a picture from graduation. And where was he graduating from? Clueston High School. About how long ago was this? He graduated in 2015. And what did he go on to do after he graduated from high school? He went on to ASA College in Miami to study for mortician and play football. It was his bye week because they didn't have a game that week. So it was the bye week and he was home for that weekend. We just lost our grandmother October 8th. She basically gave up. She had stage four cancer. She beat it the first time. It came back two years later and she didn't fight. He was a gentle giant. He didn't bother anybody. He just wanted to be successful. Later that sister said she was satisfied with the sentence. Here's the judge actually delivering it. Mr. Bonilla, having accepted your plea of no contest, on count one, I sentenced you to 30 years in the Department of Corrections with a 25-year minimum mandatory. Two through six, I sentenced you to 20 years Department of Corrections under the 1020 life uh, statute. On count seven, I sentenced you to 15 years Department of Corrections. All those counts run concurrent, which means at the same time. You're entitled to credit time served of 687 days. After court, prosecutors gave us some insight into the evidence that ultimately would have come into this case had it been presented at trial. Benia, while uh, incarcerated at the Collier County Jail, began talking to a fellow inmate. That inmate reported that to law enforcement and law enforcement equipped the inmate with a recording device and on two occasions law enforcement was able to capture a recording of Bonilla speaking with this inmate at which time it was the first time that law enforcement had confirmation that Bonilla although he was a prime suspect at the time it was the first time they had had confirmation that he actually was the shooter at the zombie con event. Let's go to our panel back again tonight. Michael Bachner, I'll start with you. What did you make of the defendant's own words there that we heard right off the top of our coverage of this? Well, I, I, I think there's a lack of clarity, frankly, as to the allocution. Uh, when he said, yes, I shot, I, I'm the one who put the bullet in the air that ended up causing the death of this person. Uh, I didn't hear an allocution, maybe I missed it, that I did it intentionally or I did it recklessly or, uh, you know, it wasn't an accident. Uh, you know, there's a need to really allocute to the elements of the offense, even on a no contest charge. So, uh, you know, some lawyer at the end of the day, Bonilla may go back in jail and say, maybe I'm not happy with this and try to make a motion to uh, set that, that plea aside. I know we need to cut things down to get them to fit into the half an hour format of the show here as we try to give people the meat and not necessarily some of the vegetables and whatnot on the side here. Nicole DeBoard, your thoughts on this one. Is this a good deal ultimately for the state? The victim's sister said she was pleased with it. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? I would agree. Uh, this plea allows for the state to get their conviction without putting the victims through a trial. That's exactly what happened here. I will say that the no contest plea was very strange. 
The defendant didn't seem to understand that he was not going to get an appeal, for example. He seemed, you know, to almost be smiling throughout. It was very odd. The net result is the same. He will still be convicted and he will still serve a lengthy sentence. Michael Bryan, I thought that some of the allocution there was an attempt to make sure that there was enough on the record for a potential civil case here as well. So where does that go from here? Because this is a no contest plea, not a not uh, not a not guilty plea, not a guilty plea. It, it sort of sits in the middle, even though from a criminal standpoint, it functions as a uh, ultimate uh, guilty plea. Yeah, it was a nice little maneuver there because if there is uh, pending civil cases, and I, I'm confident there are for the victims involved, you now you can't take that conviction and just roll it into the civil case. You're still going to have to have an analysis of liability in the civil venue uh, before anybody recovers anything. And again, that's just a money case. So. Yeah, exactly. Nicole, how might that play out here if we watch this move into the civil arena? So a no contest plea can be difficult for the civil lawyers because the person is not admitting anything. He is just not contesting the facts. And so the different questions that came from the prosecutor could be helpful to the civil lawyers to help nail down what things he did actually admit to doing. And they also are necessary to prove the elements of the case for purposes of the guilty plea. Certainly, certainly. We'll see you all at the end of the broadcast here. The U.S. Supreme Court today said it would not hear the appeal filed by the Massachusetts teen convicted of encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide. Michelle Carter unsuccessfully argued that the First Amendment protected her speech when she encouraged her suicidal boyfriend, Conrad Roy, to finally take his own life by inhaling noxious fumes. The U.S. Supreme Court's refusal to accept the case means several rulings from Massachusetts appellate courts, which upheld the conviction, will remain intact. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts noted that speech integral to criminal conduct does not have First Amendment protection. Now, before today's decision, noted attorney Jose Baez tweeted an article on his website questioning whether Carter's conviction would stymie conversations about physician-assisted suicide and potentially leave euthanasia advocates open to criminal prosecution. Let's derail this misinformation train right here, right now. The Massachusetts appeals courts have made it crystal clear that the Michelle Carter case does not apply to physician-assisted suicide. In 2016, the Supreme Judicial Court examined the Michelle Carter case the first time and said this case is not about a person seeking to ameliorate the anguish of someone coping with a terminal illness and questioning the value of life. Nor is it about a person offering support, comfort, and even assistance to a mature adult who, confronted with such circumstances, has decided to end his or her life. These situations are easily distinguishable from the present case. And the court went on to explain in detail why it arrived at that conclusion. Now, in 2019, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court looked at the Carter case again and said... This case does not involve the prosecution of end-of-life discussions between a doctor, family member, or friend, and a mature, terminally ill adult confronting the difficult personal choices that must be made when faced with the certain physical and mental suffering brought upon by impending death. Nor does it involve prosecutions of general discussions about euthanasia or suicide targeting the ideas themselves. And yet again, the court explained its reasoning and cited cases to support it. Just making sure I clear up the record there. And still ahead tonight here on The Debrief, a verdict in a murder trial involving the death of an infant. We break down that verdict, the sentence, and how the jury arrived at it. And after hours Friday verdict in the Ohio trial of a mother and father accused of murdering their infant, Jessica and Daniel Groves faced murder and lesser charges over the death of Dylan Groves. The defense said...
The baby died two and a half months after everyone admitted he was born hooked on drugs. Authorities say the little boy was murdered, wrapped in plastic bags and duct tape, and then put in milk crates bound by chains, padlocks, zip ties, and wires. That so-called coffin was then weighted and thrown into a well. Both defendants took the stand in this case. Daniel said Jessica was the actual killer. Jessica said she killed her baby accidentally. Here was the abrasive cross-examination. By dropping him? By dropping him. How did you cause this, that first two-inch skull fracture? I don't remember. How did you cause that one-inch skull fracture? It had to be from dropping him. How did you cause that complete upper arm fracture. Nothing that I ever did was intentional. I'm not asking for your excuse. How did you cause that complete upper arm fracture? Tell the jury. I have to live with this for the rest of Answer my life. How did you cause that You have devoured Ma my family. Ms. Rose, Ms. Rose, you answer the questions that are asked of you. You understand? I've admitted to my guilt. How did you know? And I have to live without my children. I'm done talking to you. You are talking to me because you're sitting on the witness stand. The jury convicted Jessica Groves as charged and convicted Daniel Groves of everything except Ohio's version of premeditated murder. Here's what the state sought for sentences. This is the most serious kind of crimes that we see with the loss of an infant child through such a horrible means. The victim's age certainly played part in the child's helplessness to be a victim of the people that should have protected him the most. I'd like to think that something positive will come out of this. We pray that it will. There's, to a certain extent, the community has been spurred to act. But as for these two, the state of Ohio, when it comes to Jessica Groves, the mother of this child, the woman that gave birth to this child, State of Ohio recommends she said we receive a sentence of life without parole for the heinous act she has committed. We'd like the court to consider the pain the child was put through in its last days on this earth. As to Mr. Groves, certainly the sentence for a murder charge is 15 to life, but we would ask the court to run consecutive sentences for his failure to act again and again and again in this matter. The victim's temporary foster mother read a note she wrote to the court from the perspective of baby Dylan. I didn't get to have a voice. My life was cut too short. But my life will have a huge impact. My foster mom will make sure I help and save and protect other babies. Today is my first birthday. I didn't get to have my party, no cake. But I did get justice today. The angels have me now. My chance to have an earthly life was taken way too soon. No chance to learn to ride a bike, to learn to fish or play baseball. No chance to run and play on the playground or to meet my friends and family. I was perfect. I could have been anything a preacher, a doctor, a lawyer. But now my purpose is to help save others. I will watch my life protect babies on earth, and I will rejoice when laws are changed. I had a little footprint here on earth, but my impact 
was anything but small. The defense for Daniel Groves asked the judge to sentence his client on the lighter end. This is not a topic any of us want to address. This is not a topic that any of us want to talk about. I would ask that the court will take into consideration my client's lack of criminal record, lack of felony record. I would ask that the court would take into consideration what he chose to own and what he chose to disown and what the jury found here today. I believe that my client has been impacted by this. I know that the community has been impacted by this and I know that the court intends to um, impose a heavy sentence in this matter, but I would ask that the court would be reasonable, that the court would not provide maximum sentences in all of these matters and not also run them all consecutively to each other. Defendant Jessica Groves spoke in court one final time, just as she was about to be sentenced. No matter what you do to me, you can never do what I will do with myself. What I have to live with for the rest of my life, knowing that I did this to my child. I failed as a mother. And at sentencing, the judge said defendant Daniel Groves had a prior misdemeanor conviction, a history of drug and alcohol abuse, and no genuine remorse. You have been found guilty of the charge of murder. I will sentence you to the prescribed term of imprisonment for that offense of 15 years to life in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. You are convicted of a charge of kidnapping, a felony of the first degree. Yeah. I am gonna sentence you to a term of imprisonment of 10 years in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. Child endangering, a felony of the third degree. I will sentence you to a 36 month term. Tampering with evidence, a felony of the third degree. I'm gonna sentence you to a 36 month term. Charge gross abuse of corpse, a felony of the fifth degree. I'm gonna sentence you to a 12 month term in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. Charge felonious assault, a felony of the second degree. I'm going to sentence you to an eight-year term in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. And as to count nine of the indictment, I am going to sentence you to an eight-year term in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. It would be my intention by imposing this sentence to impose a term of 47 years to life in the custody of Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. The judge said defendant Jessica Groves caused baby Dylan's injuries, had a pattern of drug or alcohol abuse, and also showed no remorse. Ma'am, you stand convicted of the charge of aggravated murder. You'd be sentenced to a term of imprisonment of life without the possibility of parole. To count three of the indictment, charge kidnapping, a felony of the first degree, I will sentence you to a 10-year term. As to count four of the indictment, I am going to sentence you to a 36-month term. As to count five of the indictment, charge tampering with evidence, I am going to sentence you to a 36-month term. As to count seven of the indictment, charge gross abuse of corpse, I am going to sentence you to a 12-month term. As to count eight of the indictment, I will sentence you to an eight-year term. As to count nine of the indictment, charge also charge felonious assault, I will sentence you to an eight-year term. As to count five and count seven, I will order those sentences to run concurrently with each other. I will order the remaining charges to run consecutive to each other. It would be my intention to impose a sentence of life without the possibility of parole plus an additional 32 years. 
Let's jump in with some analysis right now. Nicole DeBoard, I'll start with you. You're a former prosecutor. Were you pleased with this conviction? You know, it's sad when anyone spends the rest of their life in prison. It's such a horrific case, and it's such a sad, sad thing for this baby. I also think that it's sad that these two trials happened at the same time and that both of these parents' lives are over as well. Despite the fact that they may have earned their punishment, it's never a good thing when three lives are destroyed. Michael Bogner, here's where I think the jury got there as to the father. They turned around and said, okay, there was an aggravated assault because we listened to the mother say that it happened and we listened to the father say that he saw it. Well, in Ohio, when you have an aggravated assault and there's a parent nearby, you can basically hook the parent onto the conviction if the parent does nothing. That requirement of an act under Ohio criminal law also includes an omission if you're a caregiver like a parent to a child. So the father's failure to step in and do anything when the mother was basically doing this to the child results in a conviction for aggravated assault because the child died. It becomes felony murder, basically, in, in Ohio. That's how I think the jury got there. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and look, at the end of the day, the father, as the fiduciary and the, and, and the father of this child, had an obligation to act, didn't act, and the jury looked at him and really didn't see, in, what, in the testimony I saw, really any degree of remorse or really much of an explanation for his conduct as well. And, uh, and look, I think that's where the severance would have come in handy, but without going into that granular type of stuff, I think the jury got this right based upon the evidence they had. From a big picture standpoint, I don't think anybody liked either of these two. Michael Bryant, do you think that some of the convictions shouldn't stand on appeal? Well, I think the, the second murder conviction against Daniel, not the aggravated murder, the basic murder, is it's just a tougher sell. I know you're using this concept that he did nothing when he could have done much more. I just think the evidence of that is shaky at best because you have the wife saying he did nothing, you have uh, Daniel saying he did nothing, and then there's no independent corroborative evidence that he did something that, that would have made him more culpable. So you're, that's my take on it. You're really that trying charge. to slice and dice this here, and I know Twitter took you to I don't like him, it. though. I don't like him, but still, I, I think there's a shot that he gets off that top charge he was convicted of. Uh, okay, I mean, that, that's an interesting prediction. I, I disagree. I think that it might stick here based on the uh, theory that I outlined, but we'll wait and see when this goes up through the appeals courts, as certainly it will. Thanks again to the panelists for joining us tonight. Thank you for watching along with us. We'll be back here tomorrow at 5 o'clock with our recap of the day in court.